My name is Dave Farley. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, GCF North. Uh, thank you so much for coming out on a Saturday evening uh, to talk about this, this really important subject. Um, how many of you currently uh, have a close friend who's LDS? Raise your hand. Okay, most of you do. Uh, in, in fact, right, right now, my son Peter is playing doubles at a Whitworth Tennis Tournament with his LDS doubles partner, who's a great kid, goes to Lewis and Clark High School, uh, and his parents are, are wonderful, wonderful uh, Mormon people. He's a surgeon. She's an ER doc. They live on the South Hill. Super generous, uh, the nicest people. Uh, and then I'm, I'm playing tennis right now with a, a Mormon. Actually, he's an ex-Mormon. And I was telling Eric earlier, um, ex-Mormons are, are almost harder to talk to than Mormons because they're, they're like, I've tried religion, I've done that, and I, I, I'm moving on. So I'm, I'm really eager tonight to learn from Eric Johnson. Um, as many of you know, um, Eric is going to lead us uh, to Israel in about a year and a half, February of 2015, or I'm sorry, 20, 2025. I don't know where that came from. Who's going to Israel? Raise your hand. Okay, a lot of you are. Okay. Uh, but Eric's full-time job uh, is he works for uh, Mormon Research Ministries out of Salt Lake, uh, and his full-time job is evangelizing um, LDS people. So without further ado, let's welcome Eric Johnson. Thank you, Dave. Good evening, everybody. All right, it's good to be here in Spokane. Anybody know where Ford, Washington is? A few of you do? That's where my wife's from. It said Population 6, that was her family that lived there. <laughs> so if you don't know where it is, it's probably, what, 45 minutes, an hour from here, something like that? Uh, so my wife is from this arena. She went to Spokane Falls Community College. We married in 1988, uh, lived in Southern California. I taught... Bible uh, at a Christian school. Actually, it's the largest Christian school on the West Coast in Southern California is where it's located. I, I taught there for 17 years, and then I ended up uh, moving to Utah with my wife and two of my three girls, and that's where we've been ever since, working full-time with uh, Mormonism Research Ministry. Uh, just real quick to tell you about what the ministry is, uh, Bill McKeever founded this ministry back in 1979. Uh, he, uh, he's, he's the head of it today. Uh, he um, and I have written a number of books on the topic. We have a website, mrm.org. We also have um, a podcast, if you're interested. It's on seven different radio stations in Idaho and uh, California, Hawaii, and Nevada, and Utah, and, uh, and you certainly can go on to our website, mrm.org, and we're, we air five times a day. But I want to make it very clear who we are. We are not haters of Mormons. We're not anti-Mormons. We love Latter-day Saints. Uh, we believe that the best thing you can do when somebody is in error is to be straightforward and honest and tell them why you disagree with them. Unfortunately, we live in a day and age when disagreement is considered hatred, but if somebody has something green in their teeth walking around, have you had this happen to you before? You walked all around all day and you look in the mirror and there's lunch right there in the front teeth. Nobody told you about that. Why didn't they tell you? They didn't want to make you feel bad. Well, I think sometimes you want somebody to tell you the truth. And a doctor who says, you're doing great, and then you go back a year later and you're not doing very well, and he says, well, I knew last year you had cancer, but I didn't want to ruin your day. I think this is not what we as Christians have been commanded to do, and I'll talk a little bit about that here. But uh, anyway, if you want to see this um, PowerPoint presentation, because I, I don't have any notes to hand out or anything, you can go to crashcoursemormonism.com, and this PowerPoint is on PDFs there. Let me tell you a little bit about the basic background of this church. I want to set it up because... I'm not assuming you know anything about Mormonism. Some of you know a lot about it, and some of you don't. And so I want to just kind of make sure we're all in this first hour on the same page. And then the second hour, I will get a little deeper as far as um, understanding what some of those differences are. But uh, the name of the church is called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's based in Salt Lake City, Utah. I live in Sandy, Utah, about a half hour away in Salt Lake County, which is where Salt Lake City is. I want to just really quickly explain that in 2018, the head of this church, he's known as the prophet or president, last week he just turned 99 years old, Russell M. Nelson. 
And uh, he believes that Jesus speaks to him sometimes at night. When he's sleeping, he wakes up, and he writes down what he's told. And he, was, he says that he was told by Jesus that he's offended when the word Mormon or Mormonism or LDS is used. And they had a problem because they had a lot of things that were named Mormon, like the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. You probably have heard of them. They're no longer called that anymore because... Jesus is offended with that, apparently. And so they even changed their URLs on their website. It used to be mormon.org and lds.org. Now they've changed those. You still get to the website that's the churches, but it's known as churchofjesuschrist.org is the name of the website. So I'm going to use Mormon or Mormonism not to be offensive throughout tonight. I'll try not to use it too much. But otherwise, there's no way to explain the religion. They, they would like us to call the church the Church of Jesus Christ. I can't call the church that. To call it the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints all the time is kind of windy. And so, if there's anybody who's LDS here tonight, I'm not trying to be offensive, but your church used it for several centuries, two centuries before they stopped using it. And uh, in fact, many Latter-day Saints I talk to think that it's still okay. So, are we all okay on that? We, we're on the same page. Uh, 1830, it started with six members, uh, six members uh, in, uh, in, on the East Coast, and they reached their first million in 1947. Uh, it took them that long to get there. Today, they have 60,000 active missionaries. Have you spoken to a missionary before? Uh, the missionaries, uh, most of them are going to be young people, um, boys at the age of 18. They serve for two years. Females serve at the age of 19 for a year and a half if they haven't already gotten married. And so 60,000 missionaries. Uh, Washington State does have a pretty good size uh, of as far as Latter-day Saint missionaries coming here as, as well as members of this church. And they have 160 plus operating temples. That's one thing Russell M. Nelson has done. He's announced over 130 temples in the past, since 2018, that's is that five, year, five years? He's announced 130 temples, and the church only has 160 temples. So they're on a temple-building binge, and I'll tell you why. They believe the end is very near, and they believe the millennium is going to be a time of doing work on behalf of dead people, of ancestors. Uh, and genealogy is a very important part of what they do. And so that temple that you have here in Spokane that was built, I think it was 1998 in the valley, uh, that temple is a special place where Latter-day Saints are not supposed to tell you what goes on inside there. They're sworn to secrecy. They have certain things they have to do to get inside there. They are not allowed to drink uh, coffee and tea. I don't know. Pastor Dave, would that be a problem in this church? Uh, uh, you, I'll be breaking the word of wisdom. You have to tithe 10%, and if you don't tithe, they actually will come to you and say, if you want to keep your recommend and see your child get married in the temple, you have to pay your back tithe from last year. Uh, you, have, uh, a, a, you have to go to church services. There's a number of things they ask them. And, uh, and so those temples are very, very important. Those are special buildings. And like I say, you have one. Uh, and, um, and where I'm from in Utah, there's 29 of them. So, in fact, where I live, where I live, I can see three temples in, on, on one place. So that's the only place in the world you can actually see three of them because the valley has them all over. Uh, currently, they have a membership of over 17 million 17 million, more than half are outside the United States. So this is, they just went over 17 million in April. They're very precise in their counting. They count new converts as well as eight-year-old children because they believe eight years is the age of accountability. That's when you can start getting baptized, immersed. Before the age of eight, you're not allowed to get baptized because you're not a sinner yet. Uh, until you turn eight, you're considered innocent. And so, for, for Latter-day Saints, getting baptized is a crucial part of what you have to do in order to be um, a saved individual, to be able to hope to go to the celestial kingdom, and I'll talk about that later here. Uh, led by the prophet, uh, 17th President Russell M. Nelson, I told you he was 99, he's a former doctor, very sharp man, uh, but he's starting to slow down, he's having to use a walker now, uh, it's the first time actually this past year, so... I don't expect him to probably be around in five or six years. And then the next guy in line uh, is in his mid-90s, and the next guy after him is 94, I think. And so their top three leaders are all over 90, and some would feel that they're out of touch. 
uh, with reality because, uh, you know, they, they're kind of sheltered in a lot of ways. But um, so, so the head leader is Nelson. The two counselors, they're called uh, first and second counselor. Uh, that's called the first presidency. Those three men are the top leaders. And uh, you have Dallin H. Oaks, and then you also have a guy named Henry B. Irene. Those three men are the top leaders of this church, picked by God to be the representatives for, uh, for humanity. And then there are 12 apostles in the same way that the New Testament had apostles. And so we have what are called general authorities. Those men, when they speak twice a year at general conference in Salt Lake City, what they say is considered to be authoritative and doctrinal. And so they do lead the church today. They believe that God directly leads them. And I'll talk a little bit about their position on where you would sit as far as this church and other Christian churches. I'll get to that. Here, here are the first counselor, second counselor, and in the middle there's Russell M. Nelson and those 12 men. Um, there's never been a person with black skin on, uh, as part of the 12. They're waiting for that someday. Uh, they do have an American, um, he was born in America, but he has uh, Asian background. His name is Garrett Gong. And I wouldn't be surprised if they find somebody Hispanic for the next guy. Because they, what they'll do is they'll replace with a new person when some, one of the 15 dies. And we're going to be seeing some deaths here in the next decade. We could have four or five very easily. Uh, Jeffrey Holland, who's uh, third in line to be the prophet, uh, he's having terrible health. He's only 83, I think. So he's actually on the younger side when it comes to the general authorities. As far as Scripture... Uh, the scripture for a Christian is what? What do we have? We have the Bible. Anything else? No, we don't have anything else. This is what in Mormonism they have. This comes from a, a church manual called Gospel Principles. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints accepts four books of scripture. The Bible, anybody know what version they will use? The King James. And a lot of them don't know, but the King James has had a lot of changes over its life. 1611 is when it first came out, and right after, they already are making changes. Even 1613, they, they made some changes. They, I have a 1630 King James Version of the Bible, and if I put that next to the 1611, there's a number of changes, and the most changes happened in 1769, but they do believe the King James Version of the Bible is true as far as it is translated correctly. And what they mean by that is not translation in the way that you and I think of from one language to another, but they mean transmitted. So you have to understand, with the good news and bad news, the good news is Latter-day Saints believe in the Bible, and I would say use the Bible in your witnessing. The bad news is sometimes you'll show them something and they'll say, how do I know that was translated correctly? So that can become a problem uh, in fact, in my new book, Introducing Christianity to Mormons, I spend the first two chapters just on the Bible and why we know it is accurately the Word of God. We talk about the inerrant Word of God. We talk about the infallibility of it. And uh, I, I think it's an important issue to understand how we got our Bible. So that's a whole issue onto its own, but I just want you to understand the Bible's there. Then the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon tells the story of Jesus Christ uh, coming to the Americas uh, there was a man named Lehi in around 600 B.C. During the time of the Babylonians, they were conquering uh, the southern kingdom, and he took a boat with his two sons, uh, Nephi and uh, Laman, and, uh, and so that tells the story of this Book of Mormon. I believe uh, Joseph Smith created the Book of Mormon. It's not a historical book, but Latter-day Saints believe it's a historical book, and it's one that you can pray about to see if it's true. The third is called the Doctrine and Covenants. These are teachings from the founder of this religion, mainly uh, Joseph Smith, and God spoke to him like he supposedly is speaking to Russell M. Nelson and taught a lot of things that are contrary to what the Bible teaches. In fact, most of the doctrine in this church come from the Doctrine and Covenants. You won't find it in the Bible or even the Book of Mormon. And then finally, we have the Pearl of Great Price. And you'll see Latter-day Saints carrying around what's called the Quad, all four scriptures in one. I mean, we're talking double the size of the Bible, pretty much. And they'll carry that around on Sunday mornings because they'll use all four of those. In fact, oftentimes, uh, they'll use uh, the Book of Mormon much more than they will the Bible. Although this year, they are actually studying the New Testament uh, uh, week by week, I was just telling Dave before, um, a couple of weeks ago, they did the book of Romans in two weeks, 45-minute lessons. <laughs> Imagine doing the book of Romans in two weeks. That's what they did. 
this week, uh, they're finishing up 1 Corinthians. They did 1 Corinthians in three weeks. Now, next week, they're doing the book of Galatians, and it's horrendous. They are not... They are not exegeting the passages correctly. And I'm looking forward to doing the, because I review these online. I do articles. The next one is Ephesians. They'll they'll do that in one week. So can you imagine all the wealth of those books? And they just uh, mangle them, I think. So anyway, the Pearl of Great Price has a variety of books in it. Uh, One is called the, uh, The Book of Abraham, supposedly written by Abraham himself. Another one named Moses. At least Abraham has some kind of manuscript, papyrus, that Joseph Smith in 1835 purchased from a traveling salesman. Uh, that that uh, parchment that he, he had, he supposedly translated from Egyptian, and, uh, and it was lost and not re-found re- until the 1960s, and it doesn't have anything to do with what he translated. So they say he had a spiritual translation. Well, you can make anything happen with that. The book of... Uh, Moses, he, he didn't even have a manuscript to work from. He just wrote that, what Moses would have said. And so, uh, so that's a whole thing onto its own. Scripture's very interesting, but they, these four books together, when you use the word Scripture with a Latter-day Saint, I don't recommend you do, I say the Bible. Say, it says in the Bible. Don't say Scripture says because they would, might be thinking you're going to you also talk about the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, and Pearl of Great Price. Standard works of the church, those four books when they come together are considered authoritative. Also, the inspired words of our living prophets are also accepted as scripture. So there's, there's um, uh, Russell M. Nelson and the other leaders. They're all considered to be living prophets. When they speak, then God is speaking. In Joseph Smith history, in the overview, this is a church manual called the Pearl of Great Price Teacher Manual. It says, have students read the five italicized summary statements that are found throughout Joseph Smith history. This is found in the Pearl of Great Price. And list the major events that are described in the text. Write the following five statements on the board. I I include this because these are the five most important aspects, characteristics, if you will, of Mormonism. Number one, God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, have appeared to mankind in modern times. That's point number one. Number two, there was an apostasy of the true church. Number three, Joseph Smith was a prophet of God. Number four, the Book of Mormon is the Word of God. Notice the Book of Mormon is stressed. They don't really talk about the Doctrine and Covenants or Pearl of Great Price. They're going to ask you, if you have a missionary come to your door, to re- to read the Book of Mormon and to do what? Anybody know what you're supposed to do with it? You're supposed to pray and then have a burning in your bosom, yes, and, and have a feeling that it's true. Number five, the Church of Jesus Christ has been restored. Ask students, if any one of these statements were false, how would that affect the other statements and why? You know what the answer is? If one of them is not true, the whole thing goes apart, falls apart. One of these things... All you have to do is just show one of these to not be true, and Mormonism does not stand on its own. So those are the five. I want to go over these five as part of this introduction. Hopefully, this will make sense. You have to understand, for a Latter-day Saint, he's going to accept these things. And we never tell a Latter-day Saint what he or she believes. We ask them what they believe. But I can tell you for a fact that if you were to say, Do you believe Joseph Smith was the prophet of God? Do you believe the Book of Mormon is the Word of God? Do you believe the Church of Jesus Christ has been restored? Ask any of those questions, and they will say yes. Those of you who have talked to Latter-day Saints know I'm I'm telling the truth on this. So let's go through the first one. Um, God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, have appeared to mankind in modern times. This is called the first vision. Joseph Smith, the founder of this religion, supposedly was 14 years of age in 1820 in upstate New York. He went out to pray in uh, what's called the Sacred Grove, and he asked which of all the churches were true. This is Gordon B. Hinckley, the 15th president. This is what he says. And by the way, I have little things on the bottom of these that tell you where you can find out more information. Chapter 31 of a book that I wrote called Answering Mormon's Questions. We spend the whole chapter on this. But our whole strength rests on the validity of that vision. It either occurred or it did not occur. I agree. If it did not, then this work is a fraud. Upon that unique and wonderful experience stands the validity of this church. Now, without going into too much detail, because this is supposed to be just a general overview. I could get deeper if this was a longer time for me to speak. 
But the first vision, unfortunately for the Latter-day Saint, there is no historical evidence it ever took place, and the story grew on itself. It happened in 1820. We see nothing in the first 15 years after that where there was even one mention of the first vision, where anybody critiqued the LDS church based on the first vision. There were critics of Mormonism, but not on the first vision because it wasn't a story that was being told. Today, from the very earliest age of primary, the youngest child, all the way through to the senior uh, who is in this church, they can tell you the first vision story that is written in the Joseph Smith history chapter one. And so the first vision is huge. Uh, but it has no history to it. Uh, and a lot of Latter-day Saints don't know that. They actually have written a number of essays uh, the church has in, um, you know, from 2013 to 2015 called the Gospel Topics Essays. You can actually go to the website and you can find them there and they will admit that there were different versions that were being told. Joseph Smith in his own diary in 1833 wrote that Jesus appeared to him. Others said um, an angel appeared. There's, a, there's nine different accounts well, that's suspicious when you have people telling all these different accounts, and then in 1838, they finally put it all together and make that the official account that everybody knows today. But it was not something that was known before 1838, as far as the official version. As far as the apostasy of the church, uh, the second point, uh, the period of, this is from a uh, church manual. I'm reading from authoritative sources. These are vetted sources. Gospel principles is a basic uh, primer of what Mormonism teaches. And it's been studied for many years by Latter-day Saints. Uh, oftentimes used by newer members so they can understand what the church teaches. Great apostasy. The period of time when the true church no longer existed on earth is called the great apostasy. Soon, pagan beliefs dominated the thinking of those called Christians. The Roman emperor adopted this false Christianity as a state religion. The church was very different from the church Jesus organized. It taught that God was a being without substance. It was called the church of Jesus Christ no longer. It was a church of men. Now, this is a major problem, and this is why they're not going to be able to say that you're able to be considered to as, as complete of a Christian as they would be, because great apostasy has tainted all of Christianity. That there was a time soon after the death of the apostles, John was the last one, somewhat time between 100 and 325, that all authority was lost, there was no true Christianity, and it climaxed at the Council of Nicaea. Council of Nicaea, if you're familiar with, that came out in 325. A guy named Constantine was the emperor. He became a Christian in 313, uh, and, um, and he made, he's the one they're talking about, he, he uh, made the state religion, Roman religion was Christianity. Uh, if you ask a Latter-day Saint, because that's supposed to be the worst thing that could have happened, the Council of Nicaea, I always like to ask Latter-day Saints, tell me, what do you think the Council of Nicaea said? I'll get everything from, that's where they came up with uh, all the books of the Bible, figuring out which books were true, to that's where the Trinity was created. They'll have other ideas as well. Both of those are false statements. It wasn't, a, the Council of Nicaea was not about those two things. It was about whether or not Jesus was God in the flesh. Is he somebody we're to worship or not worship? There was a guy named Arius who was going around and saying that Jesus was a created being. We're not supposed to worship him. Uh, certainly the Trinity does come as a result of understanding that Jesus is God and that God the Father is God. And it wasn't until 381 at the Council of Constantinople that the Holy Spirit was included as part of the package. And then the word Trinity was actually created in the third century by a guy named Tertullian. Uh, it's a Latin term. It's not found in the Bible, but the concept is certainly there. And so the idea that they say, well, what happened there at that council is what created the great apostasy. Well, we still believe what is taught at the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Constantinople today. We believe those things. We believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. In fact, the Arians of that day were like the Jehovah's Witnesses of today. They use the same Bible verses, uh, like John 14, 28. Jesus has uh, said that uh, um, the Father's greater than I am, and verses like that. Uh, and there are answers to those, by the way. And uh, unfortunately, um, uh, Latter-day Saints think that because uh, there was some break, that Jesus was not telling the truth when he said that he would be with us how long? I will be with you 
always, even to the end of the age. And so Jesus has never left. And yet they would say there was a time of a great apostasy where the authority was no longer there. And the things that happened in the Reformation were precursors to what would happen when Joseph Smith came along when he was born in 1805, and then in 1830 he founds the one true church. And the third, part, the third uh, point, Joseph Smith was a prophet of God. This is what, um, uh, this is what Joseph Fielding Smith, the 10th president of the church, wrote in a book called Doctrines of Salvation, Volume 1. Mormonism, as it is called, must stand or fall on the story of Joseph Smith. He was either a prophet of God, divinely called, properly appointed and commissioned, or he was one of the biggest frauds this world has ever seen. There is no middle ground. That's, I agree. I agree. He either was a prophet of God, and we should all be following what Joseph Smith taught, or he was one of the biggest frauds of the world. I'm going to say the second part. A lot of Latter-day Saints have left this church because of problems with Joseph Smith, because of what I had mentioned before, the Gospel Topics essays. They weren't really publicized very well by the church, but they are even found today on their website. And among other things, they admitted to Joseph Smith having between 30 to 40 wives. That shocked a lot of Latter-day Saints because they knew that Brigham Young had lots of wives. They didn't know that he had wives. And one-third of his wives were teenagers as young as 14. And one-third of his wives were married to living husbands. There's a guy named Warren Jeffs. So maybe you've heard of the FLDS church. Warren Jeffs was just doing what Joseph Smith was doing. He, now, he had 78 wives, so he had more wives than Joseph Smith, but the same kind of concept, uh, you know. So, the idea of polygamy. Joseph Smith was a big-time polygamist. Also, the Book of Mormon, that he supposedly translated the book many Latter-day Saints thought that he used his finger over these gold plates that he had gotten from the angel Moroni to be able to translate that into the Book of Mormon, and then he had to return those gold plates. Well... The church now admits that he never really was looking at the plates. He had them in a bag. In fact, church art today shows you the bag that he just had them in. And instead, he had a top hat, and he had a magic stone called a seer stone. And he put the seer stone into a hat, and he looked into the hat, and it lit up. And then he would tell the words that would be written down by the scribe. It used to be Emma uh, his wife, and then it was Martin Harris, and finally it was Oliver Cowdery, who were the three scribes, the main scribes that he had to translate the Book of Mormon that was published in 1830. Uh, and, and then the Book of uh, Abraham uh, that I mentioned earlier, uh, that he really didn't know how to translate Egyptian papyrus uh, that had hieroglyphics on it. He had no clue. He just made it up. And the only way that he got away with it for so many years is that papyrus had been lost for so many years. They thought it was burned up on the Great Chicago Fire. But in 1966, a uh, University of Utah professor happened to be looking at the Metropolitan Museum uh, in the archives there. And he found what he knew was the, the, the actual uh, papyrus. And, and he, he tells the museum. They end up giving that to the church. It's a, quite an embarrassment. More people have left the church because of the Book of Abraham history historically than any other issue at all. So that's a problem. Joseph Smith is, 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 he's either a prophet of God or he was one of the biggest frauds. And then the idea that the Book of Mormon is the Word of God. This is what Jeffrey Holland, uh, the apostle, uh, said. I am suggesting that one has to take something of a do-or-die stand regarding the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the divine origins of the Book of Mormon. Reason and righteousness require it. Joseph Smith must be accepted, here we go again, either as a prophet of God or else as a charlatan of the first order. Notice they're the ones setting the parameters. I'm not. And he says, but no one should tolerate any ludicrous, even laughable middle ground about the wonderful contours of a young boy's imagination or his remarkable facility for turning a literary phrase that is an unacceptable position to take, morally, literally, historically, or theologically. I mean, we say the same thing about Jesus, don't we? Didn't C.S. Lewis say that Jesus is either Lord, liar, or lunatic? But you can't call him a good teacher. Actually, there's a fourth possibility. Maybe he was a legend. But you just can't, you know, say, well, he was a good teacher. He's got to be one of those. And so C.S. Lewis is making a case that Jesus was Lord. And they're saying the same thing. You can't, you can't get around the Book of Mormon. If the Book of Mormon is not true, then the whole thing falls apart historically, just like the first vision. The problem that a Latter-day Saint has, there is no 
historical information on people groups that came here from Israel. It used to be taught that all of the Native Americans on this land came from Israel stock. They were Semitic. But in the last 25 years, we came out with a thing called DNA, and it's shown very clearly there is no such thing as a Jewish Native American. They all came from the Bering Strait. We know that now. We couldn't prove it before DNA came out. Now we're able to show that. Not only that, but even LDS authorities, the, the general authorities as well as BYU professors don't agree as to where all of the events took place of these great battles that took place between these people groups, the Nephites and the Lamanites. Some say it was here in the Americas. Glenn Beck, if you're familiar with him, he, he believes in the, in, in the heartland model, that it all happened on this continent. Most BYU professors say, no, there's no information to help us with that. We have to go down to Central America, and we have to look at the Mayans and the Aztecs, and those might have been the people that survived because all of the good people, the, uh, the Nephites, died out in 430-something, 437, I think it was, that uh, the last living... A uh, man that was uh, from the Nephites, his name was Moroni. He later came back as an angel. His dad was Mormon, the Book of Mormon. He's the one that took the gold plates and buried them in the hill Cumorah in, uh, in eastern part of the United States. So uh, you have a lot of uh, BYU professors who say it was there and that somehow Moroni carried these plates that were six by eight by six of gold. Gold weighs 1,200 pounds per cubic foot. That is a sixth of a cubit foot. That would be 200 pounds in gold. And he somehow carried those all the way over to New York to be able to bury them. It just boggles the mind. They have no archaeology except for Mayan ruins to go to. And one of the, one of the things that you're going to appreciate, for those of you going with me to Israel, you're not going to places that are might have been, could have been, should have been. You're going to Caesarea the place that's talked about where in Acts chapter 12 where, where um, Herod Agrippa I uh, dies of worms. We're going to be at that theater and we're going to go to Jerusalem and we're going to go to Caesarea Philippi and we're going to go to Bethlehem. And uh, I mean, we have places to look at and they haven't even uncovered everything yet. They're still uncovering things from the Bible. So much is available for, from the Bible. The Latter-day Saint has a really hard time because all he has is a wish and a prayer. Well, you know, there's a lot of evidence, they say, and I always like to ask, what is it? They can't tell me. As far as the Church of Jesus Christ having been restored, the fifth point, um, uh, Dallin H. Oaks, who's the first counselor of the First Presidency, said, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has many beliefs in common with other Christian churches, but we have differences, and those differences explain why we send missionaries to other Christians. There you go. If you wanted proof that they send missionaries to why would they send missionaries to other christians because you don't have the full picture do you guys look at the book of mormon do you read it have you prayed about it have you gotten baptized into the lds church no and so that's why we're going to come to your door have you ever had missionaries knock on your door and you say well i'm a christian and have you heard them say so are we could we come in and talk to you further it happens all the time. And so, uh, and so, I don't want, by the way, I don't like to use the word Christian. You know, I'm a Christian and you're not. I don't play that game because it becomes he said, she said. I think we uh, have to be careful because it's, uh, they, they want to be known as Christian. And then we can go from there. And I say, well, you know, I have disagreements with you being a Christian uh, because I, I believe I'm a Christian, but here are the things that I hold to. Let's see how you do with that and we have opposite from who is God who is Jesus and so on and so that that, that is a, a very important point as far as things to consider when addressing Mormon doctrine I want to give you a few things to think about as an introduction uh, first off I think you need to understand the meaning of terms because when a latter-day saint tells you well we believe in God we believe in Jesus we believe in salvation by grace will they say that Yes, all three. They'll say, all, yes, we believe in those things. But the problem is what they mean by that is probably different than what you as an evangelical Christian would believe. Let me give you an example. God the Father in Mormonism, this is Bruce McConkie. He used to be an apostle back in the 60s and 70s. The, God, uh, the Father is a glorified, perfected, resurrected, exalted man. Are you all with me on that? Man, 
He has a body of flesh and bone, according to Mormonism. He's a man. John 4, 24 says that God is a spirit, and he must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. He's an exalted man who worked out his salvation by obedience to the same laws he has given to us so that we may do the same. That's blasphemous, and I hope there's no lightning that strikes here. Okay, that is blasphemous, according to a Christian. Would you agree? You have to understand, what does it mean when, uh, when, when a person says that I believe that in God the Father? Jesus, uh, Gordon B. Hinckley said, as a church we have critics, many of them. They say we do not believe in the traditional Christ of Christianity. There is some substance to what they say. When somebody tells you that they believe in a Jesus that's not the Jesus of traditional Christianity, of historic Christianity, be aware because Galatians 1, 8, and 9 says that if anyone preaches a gospel other than the one I preach to you, what? Let him be accursed. 2 Corinthians eleven four says it's possible to believe in a false Jesus. Everybody, I've, I taught at the college level and seminary level world religions. I did that on the side. I, I taught for 17 years at, at a Christian school, but I also taught in the colleges and in and, and the seminary. And uh, one of the things that I have discovered in teaching world religions and having studied many of the world religions, everybody has a place for Jesus. Even the Hare Krishnas call him a great guru. Uh, Muslims, they, they hold that Jesus is a great prophet. Peace be upon him, they'll say. And so we have to understand, just because they believe in Jesus and they'll point to their name, the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints, doesn't mean it's the true Jesus. How about salvation by grace? I pointed that out. This is what James Talmadge said. The sectarian dogma of justification by faith alone has exercised an influence for evil. Do you guys believe in sola fides here? You guys are believers in that? He says it's an influence for evil. The idea upon which this pernicious doctrine was founded was at first associated with that of an absolute predestination by which man was foreordained to destruction or to an undeserved salvation. Now we get into other issues, Calvinism versus Arminianism. We, you know, we could certainly discuss those things, but the idea that justification by faith alone is not believed uh, in, in, in Mormonism versus Christianity, that's a problem. I'm going to talk more about that in the next hour. Uh, eternal life. Gospel principles says on page 277. It's a manual again. These are some of the blessings given to exalted people. Number one, they will live eternally in the presence of Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. I guess face value, we wouldn't have a problem with that. But number two, they will become God's. They will become gods. That's what Mormonism teaches. Exaltation is godhood. They will be united eternally with their righteous family members and will be able to have eternal increase. Uh, families are forever in Mormonism. The goal is to be with your family. Eternal increase means that you get to have children in the next life and you get to be God of the next world. Number four, they will receive a fullness of joy. Five, they will have everything that our Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ have, all power, glory, dominion, and knowledge. Uh, I'm sorry, but um, I'm not going to have all glory and all power and all dominion. I'm not going to have those things because I am lesser than God. God will always uh, be those things, but that's not something I will have. So first, you have to understand what those meanings are. And uh, number two, you never assume. Never assume. And this is a problem I find that a lot of Christians will come to me and say, Oh, I, you know, I, they said they believed that, and they, I, I just assumed they were right. Well, you didn't ask any questions, and I think that's what you need to ask. Uh, Greg Kokel, in his book, Tactics, says the best question you can ask is, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? You always want to put the, uh, the, the you want to take the offensive by asking the question. Let them do some heavy lifting. And so when you say God, what exactly do you mean by that? When you say salvation by grace, what do you mean by that? That's the only way we're going to be able to understand and get to a common denominator. So what do you believe about blank if you learn nothing else in this first hour? That question, I think, would be uh, very helpful. The power of asking questions, it allows, you're giving the person a chance to explain what they mean. Because I think we do disagree on this, but I need to know what it is that you believe. 
no accusation of letting Mormons speak for themselves. You're not telling them. The worst thing you can do is say, well, you believe that God was once a man and that you're going to become a God someday. And they say, no, that's not what I believe. Well, now what do you do? You just told them what they believed. You don't know. Let them speak for themselves. People generally like to talk about themselves and they like to be the ones who tell you what they believe. So we got to be humble about this because one of the problems is reading too many of my books and thinking that you know everything about Mormonism and then telling the Mormon what he or she should be believing. They might not believe it. I'm telling you what the religion teaches based on the, uh, the standard works, based on what their leaders have taught, but you always have to go in with a humble attitude. If you listen with care, it gives you a chance to maybe ask more questions. Read the book Tactics. It will be very helpful in your evangelism. Third thing Know your own faith. This is, uh, and so I have people who say, well, all you have to do is know your faith. You don't have to know anything about Mormonism, and that's not true at all. I believe you have to know some things about Mormonism. Uh, the, the Secret Service does know all about the, the authentic currency, but they also know everything about the currencies that are being created. They have to know those things. You have to first, though, know your own faith. As a Christian, do you know the difference between grace and works? You would be surprised how many Christians don't know the difference between the two. And I'm sure it's preached at this pulpit regularly. Uh, when you go through the book of Romans, when you go through Galatians and Ephesians, and I mean, it's, the Bible is very clear about the difference, and we need to know that. Can, the Trinity comes up all the time. We need to be able to explain how there are three persons, uh, three who's, if you will, and, and one God, the one what, the essence of God. We need to understand that. Uh, the, the reasons why you believe the Bible is true while rejecting other LDS scripture. This is why I spent two of the ten chapters in my new book, Introducing Christianity to Mormons, spending time on under, helping the Christian know where we got our Bible from, why it can be trusted. Fourth is we need to realize Latter-day Saints are not the enemy. This is another point I find a lot of Christians have a problem with because they get so riled up, their voice goes you know, crazy, and they start pointing fingers and using the word you. You don't want to do that. Uh, realize that Latter-day Saints are not the em enemy by understanding these two passages. Ephesians 4.15, you speak the truth in love. 1 Peter 3.15 and 16, it says, but in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. You can't do apologetics unless you've set apart Christ as Lord. Always have an answer for everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. The last thing I'd like to do is, this is actually in, uh, this was done by my pastor. He actually put this together, and I want to show you the plan of salvation real quickly because the things that I've said I think will make sense if I can show you pictorially. So, um, like I say, it's in, in uh, Mormonism 101 for Teens, uh, a book that, that is self-published. So, take a look at the Mormon plan of salvation. At the left-hand side, um, uh, talking about this world, ruled by Heavenly Father and populated with his wives and billions of spirit children. Let me give you a quick overview of this. This is what Mormonism teaches. It's a little couplet by Lorenzo Snow, the fifth president of the church, who knew Joseph Smith and told him this, and Joseph Smith said this was doctrine. As man is now, God once was. As God is now, man may become. A little couplet, very deep. What it says is that as you and I are now, God once was in a previous realm. He has a body of flesh and bones. Doctrine and Covenants, section 130, verse 22 says this. That he lived as a human being. He very possibly could have been a sinner. Because they believe that Heavenly Father is just like we are today. So I say 70% of all Latter-day Saints, if you ask, do you believe God the Father was once a sinner? Yeah, most likely. He's like me. So somehow he graduated by when he died, he was good enough to make it to become the God of this world. But you have to understand, God the Father had a God before him, and then that God had a God in front of him, and that God, and so on and so forth. It's called infinite regression of the gods. They can't tell you much about it. They don't know who, what God's, God's name was, but they don't believe in ex nihilo creation. 
that out of nothing, not, um, uh, God created out of nothing, but rather they believe in ex materia, that matter has always existed. And that's contrary to what monotheism has taught for more than 2,000 years. Judaism holds to it, certainly Islam and Christianity. Uh, and so the idea that there was gods before gods before gods, going back into an infinite past. So, okay, everybody with me on that? That's what Mormonism teaches. God the Father somehow became the God of this realm. He, uh, this universe, if you, if you will, and then we, we have a, what's called the pre-existence or pre-mortality. It's called the first estate. There were many wives. God the Father was polygamous. He is polygamous. And he had many wives. And he had physical relations with those wives to create spirit children. And all of you were a direct result of God's procreation in this previous life. You don't remember this, but it did take place. Pre-existence, pre-mortality. Well, there, there was the firstborn son, his name was Jesus. The next son, his name was Lucifer. They both had different plans for who would be the, the, the God of this world. And so there was a council in heaven. We were at that council, and we heard Lucifer say, I think we're going to force everybody to follow Heavenly Father's plan. Jesus says, no, we're going to give them freedom. We're going to give them agency to choose themselves. And you had to make a choice. Do you know who you chose, by the way? What's your Sunday school answer, I hope? You all chose Jesus, and the reason I know that, you were given a body. One-third of our brothers and sisters were not given a body because they chose Lucifer, they became the demons. So when you're suffering from demonic warfare, those are your brothers and sisters. In fact, when a Latter-day Saint calls you brother or sister, they mean that from the pre-existence. We all were brothers and sisters in the pre-existence. Then we were born on this world based on merit, how good you were. It's kind of like reincarnation, karma. How you were born in this world was a direct reflection of what you did in the previous life. In fact, they have taught that blacks would, uh, had, were, were good, but not quite so good, and so they were born in Africa. And, and that was very clearly a teaching of the LDS Church, and there's still that element even today because there's merit based on where you're born. So here we are in what's called the second estate. That's the bottom left-hand one. We're all here on this earth. We're all going to die we're going to either go to spirit prison or we're going to go to paradise. Good Mormons are going to go to paradise. Those of us, probably most of you in this room, unless you're LDS and you've done everything you're supposed to, then you're going to spirit prison. That's an intermediate state. Then what happens on the earth, there is work being done on behalf of dead people. They have baptisms happening in the temple. They, they do uh, sealings of family members. They get marriages that, in proxy. So living members will actually do that on behalf of people who are in spirit prison. But when they do the, the baptism of, some, of a, usually a teenager, they baptize them in a font in the temple here in Spokane, and then they're released to be able to go to spirit prison and present the good news. Everybody's going to get this over the thousand-year millennium, and that's one of the reasons why they're building so many temples, so they can do all this work. Even Adolf Hitler in the 1990s was baptized for, in, out of all temples, he got baptized in Germany. Uh, excuse me, yeah, uh, Germany, in, in England, in uh, London, England. And then he was sealed to his family as well. So even Adolf Hitler is going to get to go to one of three kingdoms of glory. Everybody gets it. There's nothing special about that. That comes through the atonement. That comes through grace. Thousand-year millennium, all that work will be done, and then judgment. Now, those who were kicked out of heaven, and uh, that would be uh, Lucifer and one-third of our brothers and sisters, they go to a place called outer darkness. Is very much like hell. There's three uh, uh, there's three levels now, celestial, terrestrial, and celestial. The celestial is where Hitler's probably going to go. It's a smoky bar scene, and you're going to get what you want. Hitler will get probably that because that's what he wants. Terrestrial kingdom, good people. Probably meant most of you will end up in the terrestrial kingdom, but I asked Latter-day Saints where they'll go if they die, and they'll tell me they're going to the terrestrial kingdom as well because they don't think they're qualified and you'll see in the next hour what i'm talking about the celestial kingdom is where you become god you actually learn special handshakes in the temple and get new names in the temple with your spouse because the man is supposed to raise the uh, woman up and they go to heaven's gate and they have to be able to present those tokens that they learn in the temple to uh, whoever's at the well, jesus i guess and they hope to go to the celestial kingdom where their family will be together forever and then they hope to become the god the man and the woman 
will become a goddess, and the guy will have to get other wives to be able to populate his new realm, and he'll do the whole thing all over again. As man is, God once was. As God is, man may become. So when we're talking about eternal life, that's called exaltation in Mormonism. Eternal life is not the same as what Christians mean. Eternal life is exaltation and being able to go to the celestial kingdom and have your family forever so that you can populate your own world just like Heavenly Father did and produce children. Uh, you'll probably call your oldest child Jesus. You'll probably call your next one Lucifer and they'll have to have a battle and same, it's gonna repeat itself all over again and that will be the way it goes into an infinite future. So, that's the plan of salvation. Did that make sense? Are you understanding? I want to make sure you're understanding Mormonism. And I like to ask Latter-day Saints, if there was one here, to, you know, he'd say, well, he, he might say, well, I don't like the way you put it, but yeah, that's pretty much what we believe. And I've had that confirmed many, many times before. That is Mormonism. And, uh, and so we have to understand that for the next hour. Um, if, if you want to learn more, you can go to our website, CrashCourseMormonism.com, and uh, I have a lot of articles there that are 2,000 words for each issue, and that would be a good place. In the back table, we're going to take a break right now. I do have, I have a few resources. Uh, the newest book that I just wrote last September, a year ago, is called Introducing Christianity to Mormons, published by Harvest House. Uh, it's out of the five books. It's my favorite book. Um, it, it basically is a book that is written to Christians to help them understand what it is that we believe as Christians to be able to explain that to a Mormon, but in a way that a Mormon would understand. But I've handed this book, I've given this book to over two dozen Latter-day Saints who, or former Latter-day Saints who have read it, and it has helped them immensely to understand what it is, because it's complicated. And many people who end up leaving Mormonism don't uh, really grasp what it is that we believe. They think that we believe all we have to do is get saved by grace and then we can go out and do whatever we want. And that's not what the Bible teaches. Mormonism 101 uh, is a book that compares Mormonism with Christianity as far as uh, the, the theology. Answering Mormons' questions tackles 38 of the most common questions we get out on the street and how you can answer those. Um, Mormonism 101 for Teens is a book I wrote specifically for teenagers and, um, and uh, to help them understand, because it gets really deep. You know, some of the stuff does get deep, and so that simplifies it. And then a book that I, I edited with my friend Sean McDowell uh, back in 2018, Sharing the Good News with Mormons, produces... 20, I think 28 chapters um, written by different people on different ways that you can share your faith with Latter-day Saints. So what I'm going to teach you in the next hour is the chapter I did, but there's many other ways to do that. So um, our website is mrm.org. Uh, let's take a five-minute break. I'm going to head to the back here, and um, I'll help my wife if you want to look at the books. We'll be here afterward as well. I will have a Q&A after the next hour. Okay, so... Take five. <laughs> 